Boo 42 to 47, which I will get to eventually. So, would anybody know what Sunday this is? It's Pentecost Sunday, isn't it? So, it's Sunday morning, it's downtown Jerusalem. Something's happening that is causing people to gather together. Something's stirring in around the temple courts. It was Pentecost festival, and there were people from all over the world present for the celebrations. At first, there was just a few people, but then there was a noise. That mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire came on this bunch of people who had been waiting for something at the command of Jesus. And they began to give praise to God from the depths of their being. But the amazing thing was, whether it was a miracle in the hearing of the people, or it was a miracle in the speech, or whether it was a miracle of both, it makes no odds. Everyone heard the praises and glories of God being proclaimed in their own language and they were amazed and perplexed and they were overwhelmed by what they saw but that one event led to a moment probably one of the um, greatest sermons of all time and we find this group of disciples who had been gathering together faithfully for 10 days. Now that the Spirit had been outpoured, you might remember that 40, 50 days earlier, they'd been in a, in a, in a room after the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection, and they were afraid of the Jews. And they probably, their head was swimming all over the place. And now, 50 days later, following this one event, we have Peter standing up with the others and proclaiming the gospel for the first time with power, with authority. And the amazing thing is 3,000 approximately, because I don't know that they actually counted them, but about 3,000 people, it said, received the word and they were baptized and added to the church. What a moment in the history of God establishing his kingdom here on earth. An amazing moment. I don't think that we should underestimate this moment by any means. It was the fulfillment of Scripture. We read it, uh, I think, a few weeks ago when we talked from Joel 2. It said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters uh, shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Salvation has come. 
Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has shown himself to numerous groups of people from twos and, uh, and tens. And I think there's a seven in there somewhere and a 500. But he's shown himself to be alive. And there is no doubt in these people's minds that Jesus is alive. And yet they have waited faithfully at the command of Jesus before he ascended to wait until power came upon them. And when the Spirit came, power came. He gave them the words to say. He brought to remembrance the things they needed to speak out. And they declared, and Peter declared, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had been promised, the one who came to take away the sins of the world, and that they needed to submit and follow him. They needed to submit and follow him. And whilst the gospel is unpacked in Peter's sermon there, it says, and with many other words and exhortations, Peter implored the people to give their life to Christ, to submit and surrender their life to him. Because you see, Peter knew there was only one way to follow Jesus, and that was total be an all-in person, not a part-in, part-out, but an all-in person. There are loads of people who are part-in, part-out because they like to straddle the fence. But the problem with the fence is you get splinters and it's not in a very nice place. It's painful, all right? You can't straddle the fence. If you're not in, you're out. I don't believe that there are partially in people and partially out people. You can straddle this fence and with any luck, you'll fall the right way at the right time. doesn't work like that. You're all in or you're all out. There is no gray with Jesus. No gray. I'm sorry to tell that because we live in a world where people love the gray. They love the bit between the dark and the light. They love the grey, the, the dimness, the gloom, because they can hide in it. Oh, well, we're not sure about that, and we're not sure about this. Peter didn't apologise. He said, listen, you sinners, you've crucified the Messiah, but you could not keep him down. You could not keep a good man down. He went to the grave, but he rose again. The power of the God's Spirit raised him from the dead and moved the stone away. And he is alive and now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he is ruling. We've just had these celebrations for Queen Elizabeth. And I'm not, this is nothing against her, but she's got 70 years on the throne. My king has more than 70 years on the throne. More, much, much more than 70 years on the throne. He has been ruling since the beginning. And he will rule, but there's no end. So he's going to exceed whatever any monarch in, in, natural, in the natural world can ever sit on a throne. He is the king of kings. And his invitation to us all, and I keep, will keep repeating this, his invitation to us all is to follow. But he's not asking you to follow once in a while or when it suits you. He is asking you to be all in, all in. Peter goes 
back and he quotes King David. He roots the whole thing in their scripture, the Old Testament. Some people think the Old Testament's dead because now we got the new. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. Well, I got news for you. No old, there's no new. All right? Okay? The new is the fulfillment of the old in my book. Or in God's book, not my book. It don't belong to me. So the reality is that he goes back and he uses the prophets and he uses King David to show that um, things are going to be different. That this moment that they stand at is that moment that has been promised to them. God's spirit was given for a specific reason. It was for the declaration and empowering of the declaration of the gospel. There were things that are mentioned in Joel, prophecy, visions and dreams. A prophecy is speak inspired utterances, declarations of God just about to happen here in the Acts. That's what was going to happen when Peter stood up following the outpouring. Visions, appearances, messages from God in our waking moments. Peter on the rooftop. Do you remember in a few chapters time, Peter's on the rooftop and he has this vision of a, of a, um, a sheep being lowered with all the animals that the Old Testament say are unclean. And then there's that knock at the door because servants have been sent to get him, to bring him to tell people about Jesus. And because they were Gentiles, God prepared his heart in advance so that he wouldn't standoffish and be standoffish. Oh, I can't come to you. But he went. And you know, he didn't even get to finish his sermon before people were speaking in tongues and prophesying. And then he gets to the gospel itself. That's quite amazing. I think it's in Acts 10 if you want to have a look at it. There have been occasions in our lives where, mine and Liz's life, where we've had visions, dreams, I said to you once before, this is how you know if you're an old man or a young man, or an old woman or an older woman, not an old woman, an older woman, or a younger woman, all right? Visions are for the young, dreams are for the older people. I dream, no. Liz had dreams. There was one occasion where Liz had a dream one evening, and she shared it with me in the morning. It was about someone we knew, and this dream was very, very straight, down the line in the dream she was saying to someone that this could take away your ministry that's what she she it was so clear and you know you can have lots of dreams but how many do we really remember when we wake up and when she shared it with me because it was to do with an individual that we knew I told her that she needed to ring that individual and tell them, and that's what she did, that she had just had this dream, relayed the dream and what she felt the Lord was saying. The result was that person didn't take any notice whatsoever and they lost their ministry. On one occasion for myself, early on in ministry, about 1980, late 84, beginning of 85, I went to a a conference in the United States, a minister's conference. And I don't say this because 
visions and all the rest of it, they are what they are, all right? It doesn't make you a better class citizen of, God, of the kingdom of God than anybody else. I have only ever had one vision in my life, and it wasn't black and white. I was awake, and I saw this with my own eyes. There was this group of people all gathered in a place. I was not aware that they were inside or outside of a building. There was just this group of people. Not, they weren't really connected together. They weren't moving together. There was nothing happening amongst them. It would be like they were stood side on. So Steve, can I borrow you just for a minute? If Steve, you stand here just a minute and you're facing that way. And I might be facing this way. And someone else would be facing over there. And there was this, thanks Steve. There was the, all these people in this place and they were like that. And then all of a sudden from heaven descended a throne. And I saw this throne descend from heaven. And from underneath the throne, there was this ark of water that encompassed the people there. And as one, I'll say one person, one man, they, be, they all turned and they looked to the throne and they raised their hands and they began to worship. And they worshipped and they worshipped. And the only thing at this moment in the vision that I saw was that more and more people started to just come to the group and the group expanded and it got bigger and it got bigger and the only other thing that changed in, the, in, the, in this vision was that the ark of water kept them all encompassed, all of them, and they worshipped. And then in this thing, in this vision, it was like I was lifted up above and I was looking down and what I saw was a black background with red dots it became apparent to me, I was looking at a map, the people dispersed and went their way. And then I went down, it was like I was taken down and I saw what these red dots were. They were houses spread throughout um, and workplaces spread throughout the whole of the, whatever the town was that they were to represent at the time. And as I looked, there was groups of people praying in this room, over here in this house. And over here, there was a group of people in Bible study. In this house, there were people ministering to sick, a sick individual. In another place, there was a workplace um, sharing going on. There was many different things that I saw in this vision. And I knew that God had spoken to me. And I went through the rest of that conference and I came back. And you'll never believe this, but on the Sunday morning, I was on the platform, I was leading the service. And a man who used to be an Elam minister, he wasn't at the time. He walked down the aisle and he came to me and he handed me a leaflet. It was black background, white lines and red dots. And it was called a light in every street. A light in every street. Do you know where you live today? You are a light in that community, in that street. You are a light, hopefully flashing to those around you. You might not get the sort of reaction from people that you think you should, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You're there to be a beacon for Jesus. The Holy Spirit alive in you. And 
working through you in that place. Pray for that place. Pray for the people around you. Pray into family situations and all the situations that you know about. So there are these visions. This outpouring of God's Spirit resulted in a change of atmosphere in the place. And people praised God. And then we come to what I was going to share, and I still am going to share with you, but it will be pretty quick. Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke has brought us to a critical moment in the life of the church. You see, one of the things I don't want to say is a byproduct. I will use that phrase for now. One of the things that is a byproduct where the Holy Spirit is being poured out is that a community of the King is formed. A community of the King. This morning, folks, we are the community of the King. It's an immense privilege to be part of the community of the King. These 3,000 people received the word. They were baptized. Listen, we sometimes struggle to hold on to the ones and twos that get saved. They had 3,000 to look after after one sermon. And even if I'm generous with 120 that means it must have been about 27, 26 or 27 people each they had to look after. If it was down to the 12, it was slightly more, <laughs> a lot more. All right. But the reality is 3,000 were added. It says added. Added. That suggests to me that they were not just fleeting moments. They were added. And day by day, people started to be added to the community of the king. Now, I want to make a statement about community. Community is not the central organizing principle of the church. Community is not the central organizing principle of the church. It's not the central organizing principle of the community of the king. Community itself is a byproduct of all those who will center their lives on Jesus. Community happens 
where people are focused on Jesus. And I'll tell you why community happens. It's organic. It just happens. And the reason is, is because when Christ is central in my life, then the way I am with others is different. As I grow in the likeness of Jesus in my life, I become a more likable person. Hopefully. Better ask my wife about that. But the reality is we become more likable, more able to connect with others. We become more concerned about others and what they are experiencing and how they are. And therefore, for me, community isn't the central organizing principle. Jesus is. It is those who have come to Christ make up the community of the King. And when we establish our membership role here, for want of a better phrase, we're not just going to throw open the doors and say to every Tom, Dick and Harry who walks in the place, yeah, you're in. And it's not because Jesus wants anybody out. It's because, as I see in Scripture, they raised the bar. They didn't lower the bar to try and get people to be a participator. They raised the bar. They raised it. And therefore, we will be wanting to ask some questions like, are you all in? Are you really all in? And if you are, that's great. Have you really surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you given your life to him? If you're just considering it, you're not actually part of the community of the king as much as you might look on and look in. When we get into Acts 4, you'll see something interesting. It says this, they found favor with all the people. Again, it says it here, it says it in Acts 4. But the people were afraid to join themselves to them. Why was that? Because they knew you had to be all in. You had to be all in. So they're devoted to. I think I talked about that not so long ago. It means that we are faithful to a person or a task. We're constant in what we do. We're diligent. We persevere and we persist. And so those who had received Peter's message and turned to God, being baptized and received the Holy Spirit, they then became devoted to, devoted to certain things which I believe formulate four pillars of church life. The first, the Word of God. Here it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But for me, it is the Word of God. The Word of God has to take a high place in your life and our lives. Do you know, I was told a story once of someone who was witnessing to a Muslim and he took his Bible, and after sharing, he shut it, and he put it on the floor. And the Muslim was horrified, absolutely horrified. And when they got into conversation, 
The conversation was quite simple. The Muslim would never put the Quran on the floor. It's a holy book. Now, I don't want to get into where we worship idols, because even the Bible can become an idol, all right? But the reality is we have to have a high view of Scripture. We have to believe that this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God, that it is without error, that we can trust what's on the pages of this book. You know, do you remember um, when Simon Peter was challenged, um, Peter, who do you say that I am? Or no, I think it's in John 6. He says that loads of disciples, notice they were disciples, left because the teaching that Jesus gave was hard to take on board. Not difficult intellectually, but difficult experientially to live out. And he goes to the disciples, he says, will you leave me as well? I mean, I would never have done that. If I was down to 12, I wouldn't have done that. I'd have been thinking, how can I keep them, you know? Jesus, well, are you going to go as well? Because away you go. That's fine if that's what you want to do. And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He recognized in Jesus that Jesus, the word of God, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, right? Jesus... Jesus, the word of God, he knew that the words that proceeded from Jesus' mouth came and proceeded from the Father because even Jesus said, I only, I only tell you what um, my Father tells me. Then the men on the way to Emmaus, Jesus meets them. They don't recognize him, but then he reveals himself through that simple meal. And, he, and they say this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Our hearts burnt within us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. The word of God is totally authoritative. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The word of God is the only source, is the only source for absolute divine authority. So we can get up and we can say we've got a word from God. And some people might say, Dave, why would you want to weigh a word from God? Because... I want to check that it lines up with Scripture and we're not being led down some hokey-cokey path somewhere, which is just rubbish. And I know that I'm a human being and I can hear God and I'll get up and share something from God and I'll get to the end of what God's given me, but I think, oh, I'll just add a bit. I actually don't think that. I keep going. I go too long. And I need someone to weigh it and discern it and to, to sift it and cut the bits out that shouldn't be there. The word of God will accomplish what it promises, Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. So 
without a shadow of a doubt, the word of God. We have to have a high view of it. If we're going to be a member of this church, a partner in this church, we've got to hold the Bible in high esteem. Not just esteem, but we, we, we love this book. We love every bit about it. We don't try and negotiate a better deal with God every time we hit a bump verse. But we recognize it's another opportunity to bow our knee and submit to him. Fellowship, number two. Fellowship. Fellowship isn't some buddy-mate type idea. You might think that's what it means, fellowship, you know? We like fellowship, don't we? We talk about having fellowship one with another. Well, it's not some buddy-mate type of idea. When you become part of the community of the king and you start to receive the word of God, you are not just in some buddy-mate idea. You might be friends, you might be mates, you might be buddies, but your relationship in the community of the king is far deeper than that. What's mine is yours. What yours is is mine. We share together. We don't want to see need. That is the thing I was amazed at here in Scripture. There was nobody there who had any needs whatsoever. What a declaration of the kingdom of God. Needs met like in heaven. No more death. No more dying. No more sickness. No more crying. No more tears. Wholeness. And we should be a community of the king which is bringing wholeness to one another. That means when you see me sin, because if you hang around me long enough, you may well do. And I hate to shatter the fact that you all think I'm so holy that I'd never do that. But the reality is, if you see me sin, you love me enough. Hear me when I say that. You love me enough to come and you don't just stand up at the front and go, hey, pastor, bang. You draw alongside an individual and you say, hey, can I grab a coffee with you? Now, don't worry if I invite you for coffee. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. All right. So, but the reality for me, the reality for me is this. Fellowship is deep. Our fellowship is found in Jesus because Christ is central to everything we do. Christ is center. My fellowship with many of you would not be in place except for Jesus. And it's not that I would purposely just throw you a defy, right, and walk away from you. But reality says to me, I've had mates and buddies in other places and you gravitate to people who you feel you can get on with and you, whether you like it or not, you're less interested in the other people because these are your mates and your buddies. Our fellowship isn't mate and buddy, my little mate and buddy group. So small groups are on this week. Don't get so comfortable in your small group that you don't want to divide it. Oh, sorry, not divide, multiply it. Do not get so tight that you think it would be a shame if you let someone else in. Because that doesn't demonstrate the love of God. Doesn't demonstrate the love of God. Fellowship 
It says when John writes his first letter, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. What was John proclaiming? What were they proclaiming? They were proclaiming Jesus. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is centered around our common life, centered on Jesus. That's why it doesn't matter if you're loaded here this morning and you've got more money than you know what to do with. I can think of some things that you might like to do with it. But, you know, you might have all the money in the world. You might be the poorest person that's ever lived, but in Jesus, you are the same. You are equal. In the world's eyes, you might not be. But I want to tell you, before the throne of God, there is no difference between you when you're in Christ. He doesn't love the rich man more and the poor man less. He loves both. In fact, James teaches us a lesson. Don't move those who are in need out of the seats of honour in order to replace them with the people you think need the honour. You know, get the honour because they're the good givers in the church and all the rest of it, right? Don't do that. So fellowship, um, breaking of bread. For me, it's twofold. It's communion, which we will take in a few moments. It's the declaration of the gospel. I love doing communion every week. I love doing it. The moment I begin to feel that it's just becoming a religious act amongst us, I will rest it because I don't want it to become a religious act that we do. It has powerful meaning. It's a declaration of the gospel, of love. It's a declaration. God, this, I have to cut the wheels off these things. So, breaking of bread. But it also means breaking bread around each other's home. It's great. I've broken bread in some homes here. And I've had some of the best fellowship that I've had in, I've got to be honest with you, probably... 15 years I've had great some great fellowship you know doesn't mean you've got to throw the best meal in town you know you know me a biscuit will do for any food will do basically you know wave a biscuit at me and I'll be there you know um, have a coffee have a biscuit have a coffee have a piece of cake have a coffee sweets will do anything will do you know me but sharing life together, doing life together, that's what is so emphasized here. Just to remind you of a verse that I used, and I think that Dolly reminded us of last Sunday, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become so dear to us. Or in the NIV it says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Last but not least, prayer. Prayer. Acts contains numerous prayer times. A few chapters time, I said it a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 4 when they prayed, the place in which they were was shaken 
And there was great boldness came upon them. And they declared the word of God boldly. Prayer. Prayer is the indispensable part of life. Prayer is breathing in and out. You do it, you breathe in and out imperceptibly most of the time. You don't make yourself aware. If you were picked up by an ambulance man, he will talk about, I can't remember what it's called, but he'll talk about the number of breaths you've taken. What's that called? Does anybody remember what that's called? Because I ain't got a clue. Yeah, it's their respiration rate, that's it. So thank you very much there. Um, Gary, I appreciate that. So they give them, when they take them in, I watched Casualty, I know everything. Everything I learned medically, I learned from Casualty. But as they're wheeling them in on one of those gurney things, they are literally, it's the respiration rate. They tell them the respiration rate. I pr- this is what C.S. Lewis said about prayer. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. And Martin Luther said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. Boy, what a man. Scripture says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, Ephesians 6. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. James 5.13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Romans 12.12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Prayer changes things by inviting God's kingdom, his rule, his reign to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Our desire isn't what is paramount when we come to prayer. It's his. When we come to pray, it's about him. It's not about my desire. Don't ever pray and ask the Lord for desire to pray. Because I don't think desire is the issue. I think it is simply we are to pray because it is commanded. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If you read the rest of the chapter, these are the things, just one word, the supernatural happens. They were together, they were devoted to, giving themselves to, and all came upon the people. A fear of the Lord. Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God gets his rightful place. The supernatural begins to happen. There are miraculous signs, healings, distribution of food beyond what, beyond what is humanly possible. Deliverance from prisons, we're going to, you'll see in the later book, uh, chapters of Acts, shipwrecks where nobody is lost, which is very uncommon. They were the unity, they were sharing all that they had together. There were no needy among them. Gladness of heart. There was a gladness, a rejoicing, an extreme happiness amongst the people of God. Generosity was released. 
To be generous, you need to recognize that you are but a steward of what you have and not an owner. And what we have belongs to God first and only to us by his grace. Favor, goodwill, favor, esteem, kindness, salvation came. There were more additions to the community. So somebody said, why do you do takeaways? I do takeaways. I call it a takeaway. Just because it's something for you to mull over. Given what I've said, we need to be Christ-centered. We need to be prayer-reliant. We need to be spirit-empowered. We need to be people-focused because that's what they were. We need to be gospel-motivated. When the Spirit comes upon you, you become gospel-motivated. And we have to become discipleship-committed, which means we are word-centered. So let's give ourselves. My challenge this morning is let's give ourselves to knowing Jesus and then making him known.